just past 7 o'clock. We love Monday nights around here on the True Oldies channel because it's time for Iron Sports 95.9, the True Oldies channel. Mike Balsamo here as well. Going to be fun, Ira. First time back in studio. It's been a... What, six weeks, maybe? You've been Not in- six, but it's great. I'm telling you, I was getting cold being in Ohio this past weekend. <laughs> it was, it's only 50 degrees. I mean, when you're at a game and you're wearing about seven layers and the people next to you are in shorts and a t-shirt, mm-hmm. you know that you're just fair weather at this point. <laughs> yeah. And then some guy took his shirt off at the Browns game. That was a little too much, I think. It's one of the um, quandaries, I guess, you run into, you know, living in like LA and South Florida, but being a fan of teams that play in the AFC North and, know. you know, Penn State, you're constantly having to go to freezing tundra in the middle of uh, November, and December. And yeah, it wasn't that cold. I mean, the thing is, it wasn't, it, it was very windy in Cleveland. I saw this, I saw Penn State play Ohio State on Saturday night. And actually, I, it was, it was probably warmer. The temperatures were same, but the wind, it was so windy yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so I got cold. I got cold at the end of both games, which is weird. And I was, I was pretty layered up, ready to go. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was, it's cold. The 50 degrees is cold when you're used to 80. Well, you get good seats too. I mean, Imagine being in the nosebleeds. That wind <laughs> wind's a lot different up there. Right. <laughs> um, Jared Diamond's going to join us about 7.40. We've had him on before. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, he's the Wall Street Journal national baseball writer. And with the World Series in the middle of it right now, it'll be great to have him talk about the Braves uh, and the Astros. And, and he's been there for the whole series and, and seeing everything that's been happening. And give us insight in terms of some of the teams. We're going to ask him about the Yankees and, and the, those teams. So we'll see what happens. But it's great. I, I'm excited to have him in. He has really – he wrote a book called – Swing Kings is a whole analysis about where baseball is going. So we're going to have sort of a macro picture of baseball too. So I'm excited to have him on the show. It's interesting. He'll talk about how, you know, in the first inning of last night's game, thinking maybe I'm going home. (laughs) Obviously that didn't quite happen uh, the way Braves fans would have hoped, but we got a lot to talk about coming up with that. Let's go right into uh, NCAA. You were there yesterday, Penn State. Saturday. uh, Saturday. I'm sorry. It's been a quick weekend. (laughs) Um, This is a game that... I don't know if you were anticipating Penn State to win, but they had to have a feeling deep down like they could win this game. They're playing pretty good going into Ohio State. Well, I think that losing the two losses coming into it, but I think that we were a 20-point underdog, and I felt that, but again, this rivalry, I think where the, the hope had been is that it seems like every game in the series has been decided by a couple points, and every game is a classic. So the point is if Penn State can rise up and, and play in the, in the way they're supposed to play, and Clifford was going to be healthy. Their quarterback's been hurt the last two games. He was hurt the Iowa game, and the second half didn't play. It was hurt against Illinois, which is a horrendous loss for Penn State. But I think people were, the line, people were expecting Ohio State to blow up because the line opened at 18 and it finished like 19 and a half. But uh, Penn State, from the moment the game started, it was clear that this was a different Penn State team and they're ready for the game. So let's talk about before the game because there's always interesting stuff that, that happens with you, uh, you know, trying to get in there. So how did uh, how did getting to your seat go? Well, it was... Uh, it was like one of those games when you go to Columbus. I had to fly to Cleveland because I wanted to leave from Cleveland. It's it's hard going to all these events because you can't drop cars off. It makes it difficult. But when you go to Columbus, it is one of those things where I, I never can figure out how to do the parking the right way because I'm nervous. You can always buy the tickets, but not the parking. But I parked it. You park in someone's back of someone's house. Oh, and you're gosh. like nervous. Are you really? Should you park there? And then they ask you for your phone number. Like, well, I'm going to get my phone number out and all this other stuff. And But it's still, the town is nice. You go to High Street. There's bars, the fraternity houses. It Columbus 
Columbus is a city. I mean, it's a big city, so there's a lot of activity going there. I was there two years ago for the game. Again, I've been, this is my fifth time at Ohio State for the game. But uh, what I was shocked about was walking around town was I did not see Penn State fans. Usually you go to these games, you see tons of Penn State fans. You saw nothing. I mean, it was absolutely, I was like getting nervous. I'm like, well, maybe they're hiding somewhere and they're <laughs> going to come out. But it is, it's, it's, I love college football because I love the fact that you have the mixture of the bars and the parties and the bands. And then you have the frat houses all around the campus. And then what's exciting was to go, is to go right to the uh, stadium and the team comes out from, they have a hotel that they stay at. And then they have this whole procedure where they walk from the, from the hotel to the auditorium and then they walk to the stadium. And they used to like dress up in suits. Now they were just wearing sweats, but it is the people line that. So it's hmm. almost like a half a mile that is, you're going to have just lined of people around and the people are tailgating, but they all come to it. And that's pretty exciting to see. I got some great pictures that we put on Instagram and under Iron Sports and on uh, Facebook and and uh, and Twitter. But it was exciting to go just be there, the excitement of the game to come in and watch all of them, them walk into the game. And and my seat at the game was great. There's a Ohio State is a weird old stadium. It seats 102,000, but it's like three to four different levels. And so mm-hmm. it's like an under, there's a first level and then there's like the second level called a box level. And the section I had was only had like two rows on. It should be like a suite, but they don't have suites on, they have suites on one side, but not the other. So I sat in the suites, I sat in there, and but I bought it because it was supposed to rain and I didn't want to, after the New England experience, I wanted to be <laughs> undercover. And uh, so it was good. It was right on the 50, but it was up about 30 rows. And I thought it was going to be, you know, a very good, nice experience. I got my pin. They actually, they're one of the few schools that you can buy pins of the game before, because you know how much you collect these, love these pins. <laughs> so that it says Penn State and Ohio State on. And it was, when you get there, you see Herb Street on the field, throwing the ball around. He was former quarterback of Ohio State. So he's on the field throwing to his son. You see Franklin out there, talk to Ryan Day, uh, just the interaction of the, of the players and the coaches and stuff like that. I mean, remember a lot of, they don't, you don't see before the game, these guys, but a lot of these guys from Penn State, Ohio State, they have played on the same high schools with each other. They've been to camps. Like they're some of their best friends on each other's teams. <laughs> so they don't talk before the game. They certainly talk after the game, but it's neat to see just the, the warmups. Ohio State, I'll say this about warming up. They warm up at a very fast pace, which I'm impressed. Like they go out there and they're throwing the ball around. The ball's not dropping and they're running around. Some teams go out and just, you know, stretch around. They, they worked, they were pretty fast paced with that. Let's talk about the uh, the game itself because first half was uh, pretty competitive. Yeah, I mean the one uh, the one aspect of the first half being competitive was that I have to say this: I have been to a zillion sporting events. I have never been heckled like I was from this guy behind me. He was he he was just he was like waving his towel. And it was hitting, in the, hitting me in the head every time he waved his towel. And I'm thinking, that's probably an accident because everybody's waving their towels. But then, whenever Ohio State would do something, he would like, he then he started pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. And I'm like, crazy, like, keep your hands off me. And then he was like screaming. And I was listening to the radio. So I sort of like t- tried to tune him out and tried just to ignore it and just get worse. And finally, security, there were these three ladies there, security. They went and told him, like, stop doing that. Like, you can't do that. And then he didn't do it after that. I mean, I said, throw him out, but they, he didn't do it. There was no Penn State fans at the game. I have, it's 100 2000, they were all dressed in, they call it scarlet, which is like this red, the Ohio State red. But there was no, I mean, I've been to Ohio State games, there's been like 10,000, 15,000 fans, but the Penn State fans were just, nobody showed up. There was a student, there was a friends and family section, and I was like the only person, I couldn't see a Penn State fan. That's crazy. And then near the end of the game, 
the people next to me left and then these two 20 year old kids came in and they start jumping around yeah everybody's standing the whole time but they're getting in my face like I said don't touch me don't touch me but they were in my face just standing and looking at me like just just saying things I'm like gosh be excited the game team won like what are you doing like <laughs> and then finally these two huge Penn State fans came and sat in the row that I was sitting in and they looked like football players and then I think then sort of settled them down and then they left and then the guy said he goes they they couldn't believe how the fans were that these guys had to be like almost 280 like 6'2 they go people were heckling them and yeah. I'm like I won't be heck I don't know anyone <laughs> bigger than these two guys next to me but they said it's the worst experience they've ever been through and uh, I was I, the Ohio State fans now are with the Eagle fans like I think they they terrible terrible I, I, I'm not I'm just saying it's a few fans I don't not everybody but I was mad that the fans around when they saw them you know screaming like this someone should have turned around and said guys settle down you're just impacting the game like I'm not yelling back at them I'm not fighting I'm not I'm just taking my pictures I'm watching the game like they, someone should have just told them to shut up and no one did so <laughs> there's nothing worse than obnoxious fans and I guess maybe you'd like to think that a more prestigious university that's had a lot of success wouldn't have fans like that but I guess it's just not and the I case. I want to bust on Ohio State one more time. I know we're going to run late and Mike's going to be screaming at me for this <laughs> but I'm going to bust one more time is that Penn State fans at the end of the game get louder and louder and louder and by the end of the game they're standing they're screaming it's louder at the end than the beginning. The Ohio State fans were loud at the beginning but they serve alcohol there and I think people just got like drunk by mm -hmm. the end because people then weren't standing the entire but in the fourth quarter when the game's in, in balance they're not standing I, I would say that 10 percent 20 percent of the stadium left and it was like what well, they're not into it as much and i think that's the difference in the games that i've been to like the alabama fans i've seen i've seen a lot of stadiums i could not believe how the ohio state fans like they want to heckle me and whatever but they're the first ones to leave early like the people were heckling <laughs> and then they are such true fans but you're not staying to yeah. see the end of the game they're, they're there to drink and that, <laughs> that, that that's why they're there and that's why they're bad fans that's why they do stupid things like that it's iron sports true all these channels 712 uh jared diamond joins us at 740 uh, let's talk about the game well, the third play of the game, I think Ohio State's been blowing teams out like for the five, like they've had the last four games where they've just get these huge leads. They score, they've scored on 17 of 18 of their first half possessions with touchdowns, one with a field goal. But the third play game, uh, they fumbled. And then Penn State gets the ball. First thing Penn State does, they fumble back. <laughs> They fumble back. And then they finally forced Ohio State to punt. It's their first punt, I think, as I said, in the first half in like four games. And then Penn State had this drive down, and they really had this hurry-up offense. I mean, I've never seen Penn State. They look like Kansas City out there. Like, they're just going, going, just passing. Clifford was great. And it was not really running. It was just short passes. And then Clifford did the tight end for a touchdown to make it 7 nothing. And then... Ohio State, the penalties, they had like seven uh, procedure penalties. They were undisciplined, making mistakes. They ended up getting a field goal, and that was one of the criticisms. They would go down, and they would move Penn State, but they could never, they couldn't, it was hard for them to score touchdowns. They were only settling for field goals. Um, and then Penn State went on fourth and five on the Ohio State 42. We've talked about this before again. Coaches between the 40s, they're now college and pro. If it's fourth and five and under, they're going, they're going. for it. They're going for it. Clifford got sacked. And then they, here, they, they have all this momentum. They just sacked Clifford, stopped and fourth down and Ohio State goes three and out. That's why the Penn State's defense really stepped up and they really, the Brister, the 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 cornerback for Penn State is going to be a first round pick. Uh, Castro Fields is going to be a first round pick and Joey Porter Jr. All their cornerbacks play great on the great uh, Ohio State wide receivers. And then Ohio State had this five play 69 yard drive. They, they scored like so fast at like a minute 39. That made it 10-7. Um, and then 
within the key part was the end of the first half. Penn State drove down to the 37-yard line of Ohio State. They looked, okay, we're down 10-7. We're still in the game. Clifford is sacked by Tyreek Smith. Jerron Cage, who weighs like 400 pounds, picks the ball up. He's one of those where defensive linemen rumbles down the field and scores. And they have to review it. Is it picked up or not? But it counted. So then that gave them that 17-10 halftime lead. And that was that was, that was was the difference. I mean, that play was just bad. So you're, you're thinking, Penn State's play great. It's a 10-10 thing. We're going to be in this game. And it's 17-10 now, Ohio State. Uh, going into the second half, um, Again, Penn State was keeping it close early on. Yeah, I mean, they threw, Clifford was throwing to Hardy Dotson, the great wide receiver, who's going to be a first-round pick for Penn State. Uh, they converted three first downs. And then, it was so funny, last week against Illinois, they had six chances. They had six chances in the overtime period to just run a two-point play. They couldn't score. Seven play, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't do it. This time, they said, I said, why don't you just give it to Dotson? Dotson's so talented. So this time, they figured it out. Okay, let's do a direct snap. Direct snap to him. Scored immediately, which they should have done, you know, <laughs> Last week, if they did it once, they would have beat Ohio State. And then Ohio State drove down. They were first and goal on the Penn State six. They got it to fourth and one, and they were going. They were going for the touchdown, but they uh, but they decided they got a procedure penalty again. Every time it was fourth down or whatever, they're at home. Usually it's the other way around, yeah. so the fans they get another procedure penalty. But they're still they're up twenty seventeen, and then. That's when the game sort of broke open because Penn State had a punt. They went, uh, Trevon Henderson, who's leading the country with eight yards of carry, who really didn't have that great a game. He did an amazing 68-yard run down there. And then two more times, they scored a touchdown, 27-17. But I liked how Penn State would kept coming back. So you're thinking, okay, game's over, 27-17. Then Clifford has this great drive back and forth, driving down there, 11 plays, 75 yards uh, to make it 27-24. Uh, but when, right when they had their chance to come down, it was uh, Clifford had threw an interception. Uh, it was like they had the ball down 27-24 with a chance to win. They couldn't do it. And then Ohio State again, um, uh, they had a chance on fourth down to go, and the Ohio State was able to stop, stop them, and they weren't able to score. But it was, uh, it was this one on the play, it was a weird, the ending of the game was weird because it was 30 to 24 and Clifford threw a touchdown pass to Love It. They ruled it on the field a touchdown, but then they ruled that he stepped out of bounds. It was on third, second down or third down. So instead of being a penalty, it's one with loss of down. So they actually had two plays for that. And then that was it. Like it was like, <laughs> okay, that was their chance was that whole play. And then Ohio State get the ball, kick the field goal. But it was like one of those things where if Love It doesn't go out of bounds and Franklin was saying it was pushed out. I saw the replays. It was, it was hard to see if it was pushed or whatever, but they ruled it that way. But, uh, you know, that was, it was, it was one of those games where Penn State was in it. It wasn't getting to the last second, but close enough to be, you don't want to have a bad, look, Penn State has to win these games. You can't have tough losses, but it was, so, you know, they covered the spread much different than people anticipated. Let's go to uh, Michigan and Michigan State. And this was a big game. You know, Harbaugh is going into this week with his team playing good, but he's getting flack for not winning these big games. Three and three, lifetime against Michigan State and couldn't get into the win column. It was one of these games where I think there's, they had their chance. I mean, Michigan State started the game. Patrick Thorne, their quarterback, threw two interceptions on his first like four passes. Michigan jumps up to twenty to fourteen, and they really could have been up twenty-seven fourteen. They they scored the touchdown. I I think they said the the uh, running back was down. I thought it was a touchdown. I thought it was good. That could have been twenty-seven fourteen, but it was call reverse, made it twenty-three fourteen. But then in the second half, um, they go and, and Michigan State run. It was Michigan scored another touchdown, so they were up thirty to fourteen with six minutes forty-seven seconds to go in the third quarter and you're like this game is over they just need to score one time but Kenneth Walker Jr. or Kenneth Walker the third Kenneth Walker for uh, who actually played at Wake Forest which is surprising that he transferred went from Michigan State he was unbelievable
unbelievable. He scored, he just kept scoring. And th so they're down 16, he scores a touchdown, then, he sc then they score the two-point conversion. Then they score another touchdown, then he has a 58-yard run for a touchdown, then he gets a two-point conversion. And then even when Michigan scored a field goal, made it 33-30, the question was, and this is where everyone's blasting Harbaugh, McCarthy was back, it was the backup quarterback, was in the game for McNamara. They were switching up a little bit to have McCarthy in. But at that point, when McCarthy was in the game and fumbled it, McNamara was in the uh, tent, was, he was in, hit an injury. So they're saying, oh, why was he in the game? They're attacking Harbaugh. Harbaugh said he was out. It was like one of those things where they're blaming Harbaugh for this. But McCarthy fumbled. Then what does Walker do? Can, he scored his 23-yard touchdown return. And, uh, you know, by Michigan had two more chances, couldn't convert, couldn't have it, couldn't score. They had through an interception at the end. But Walker ended up with 23 carries, 197 yards, and five touchdowns. It was the most, touch, it, it was the most against Michigan ever in terms of five touchdowns in a game. And I think if Michigan State ends up winning the Big Ten, Walker could potentially be the Heisman Trophy winner because of a game like that on where, where he was like this running back where he just could not be tackled every time he got the ball he seemed to score I think that's what makes you that was his Heisman moment now he's going to have the Heisman moment against Ohio State if it's another game like that when he plays they have to play Penn State and Ohio State they do that then they're in good shape what happened in the rest of the Big Ten? Well, I think the key thing is that Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State, Michigan State, it's like a round robin. They played one. Now they each have to play each other yeah. again. <laughs> so who's not, what was going to happen? But really what the rest of the Big Ten is that uh, Wisconsin destroyed Iowa. So Iowa now is out of the picture. And the whole other side of it called the Big Ten, the West. Minnesota, which has a loss to Bowling Green, is going to be in there. So this this is one of the situations where if, if there's a one-loss Big Ten team, uh, it, it might they might get shut out because there's not going to be impressive to beat. People thought Iowa was going to be under defeated, me included. They look great at the beginning of the season. They get to the, fi to the final of the Big Ten. Now I was out. So really, it's a situation where whoever Mich we'll see what happens between Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, and Ohio State. If Ohio State is undefeated, Michigan State's undefeated. But Michigan still has a chance. I mean, all these teams except Penn State really have a chance to make it to the Big Ten championship game and, and go to the college football playoff. Let's go to the SEC here on Iron Sports at 720. We'll have uh, Jared Diamond on at 740. So a lot of people going into the Georgia-Florida game Ira, we're saying take Florida with the points, take the over. This is going to be a sneaky close game. It was not. And Georgia showed why they're ranked number one. Well, it was 0 0 after the first quarter, but. And I'm walking to the game, so I, I caught the whole second quarter, and that's really all you have to catch, too, because I parked my car, and then I went over and saw Buffalo Wild Wings, and I was watching the second <laughs> quarter. And in, within a, in a two-minute period, the, the Bulldogs scored three times in two minutes and nine seconds. The last team to score three touchdowns in that little time at the end of half was Utah State, which did it in a 52-26 to 26 win in 2015. <laughs> and, it was, and it was really, Richardson fumbled the ball, so they, they, were, mixed, they, were, they were exchanging between Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson. But Richardson fumbles the ball, Georgia scored a touchdown. Two plays later, later, Richardson threw an interception. Then Georgia went and scored a touchdown. Then Richardson threw a pick six. I was like, unbelievable. Yeah. Suddenly it's 24-0, game over. Florida's 4-4. Four and four. And remember I talked about how this was going to be this big game. Georgia's defense, and, and they were interviewing the Georgia players after the game. I was listening to the interviews late at night. They were upset that they gave a touchdown to Florida at the end of the game. They wanted to <laughs> shut Florida out. Like, their standards are so high. They're playing Florida in this big game, and they're just mad that they gave up that touchdown at the end of the game. So, but, I mean, Florida has Florida's four and four, but they play South Carolina, Sanford, Missouri, and Florida State. So they should really go four and zero in the game, finish eight and four, but still disappointing. But Georgia is not going to lose to anybody there until they play Alabama in the uh, in the SEC title game. And the other SEC game is that Mississippi, uh, who had, their only loss was to Bama. They were beat. They Auburn beat them. So it was that's a this big surprise that Auburn's starting to play well now and beat Mississippi. Now Auburn has two losses. Mississippi two losses uh, for the rest of the SEC. Let's. Um, go over to the ACC now, and this was going to be 
uh, Notre Dame and UNC. And you had mentioned that this kind of has ramifications for basically the entire seeding. Cincinnati's thing, the only thing they have to hold their hat on because they're playing teams like Tulsa and Navy and Tulane who are very good. They're in the American Conference is that they went to Notre Dame and beat Notre Dame. If Notre Dame keeps winning, Notre Dame's 7-1, they beat North Carolina. If Notre Dame keeps winning, it makes Cincinnati look better. Yep. Just the same thing with Oregon and Ohio State. If or Ohio State is, is has one loss and wins the in, in the Big Ten, and their only loss is to Oregon, then Oregon's going to say, wait a second, we went to Ohio State and beat them. So it's almost like you're really rooting for that other team. But it was a big win for Notre Dame over UNC. Uh, and, UN, and this is a team, North Carolina, that everyone had in the top 10 when the year started. Just another disappointing year. And Wake Forest is 8-0. Only undefe- they're the undefeated team in the ACC. No, everyone else has two losses, but they uh, they beat Duke forty-five to seven. This is their best start ever, really, for Wake Forest. And but they play about North Carolina, NC State, Clemson, Boston College. I really think that Wake Forest is going to have a loss there. And the reason why people aren't putting Wake Forest in the championship picture is that their wins were at a conference where Old Dominion, Norfolk State, and Army, not like murderer's row of teams, and the conference is bad. So that's why the ACC has the issue. And then the, the one other game would be the Miami game. Yeah, and this one's interesting. You know, I've been burying Miami on this show. They've now won twice in a row. And there's a lot of people in Miami sports media saying, well, if they win out, which is Georgia Tech, FSU, Virginia Tech, and Duke, Manny Diaz should keep his job. I still don't know if I would, but either way, the team's trending in the right direction, I guess. Well, I think it's one thing is that uh, Tyler Van Duke was, uh, uh, was, was, uh, the red, it was a redshirt freshman. He was on the, like the fifth or sixth on the depth chart coming into the season. I guess the, for a coach not to recognize that, he played great. He had 32 for 42, 426 yards, three touchdowns, uh, just one interception. And he went toe-to-toe with Kenny Pickett, who was not, who threw for 519 yards, a, a school record for Pitt, who was some people think considered as, you know, was a Heisman candidate going into this, could be a first-round pick at the NFL draft. Um, Miami's defense is great. They had two interceptions against him. He's only had one all year. But the point is, they, it took them this time to find their quarterback, and he's a redshirt freshman, so they're like, if they finish out strong, yeah. I, you just don't know about this, all this coaching thing, but the point is, Miami's 4-4, four and four, Florida's 4-4, and, four and, four, and I think a lot of people thought each, each team was going to have a much better year coming into the season. Yeah, I mean, Florida did have some, some rougher games, but they've also played better, and I, I mean, obviously, I don't think anyone thinks that UM is better than Florida at this point, but yeah, we were both anticipating talking about these teams being in the top 10, you know, come this time. Let's go to the Big 12. Really, just, it was the Oklahoma destroyed Texas Tech. Uh, their freshman, Caleb Williams, is uh, playing absolutely fantastic. 23 for 40, 402 yards, and six touchdowns. And Oklahoma State and Baylor keep winning. And until these teams start playing each other, that's what we're interested in. And one of the big things was uh, TCU lost to Kansas State 31-12. And Gary Patterson was, was they, they literally fired him. And mm-hmm. Gary Patterson built TCU. He's been there for 20 <laughs> years. He's only 61 years old. His record at TCU is 181 and 79. In the 20 years he's been there, he's won 17 bowl games, 111. He's been the coach of the year twice. Um, and, he, and he's won 10 games this season 11 times. The, they have new facilities, a new stadium. They're in the Big 12. They were in the Mountain West, yeah. all because of Gary Patterson. He's one of the hot people. Everybody wanted to hire him. He's a brilliant uh, defensive mind. 
fine. And as short as like in 2010, they were 13 and OB Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl. And then in 2014, they tied Baylor. They, people thought they should have been in the playoffs, but they tied Baylor. They were uh, ranked number six in the country. I, it's just one of those things where Texas Tech fired their coach and Sonny Dykes from uh, SMU. They think he's going to go to Texas Tech, but he'd rather prefer TCU. It's almost they fired Patterson to get to Sonny Dykes at SMU. But I think Patterson get another job. He's young. He's 61. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of teams, I think, that would want him. I can't believe a school. He stayed at that school, didn't leave the school, and now he's out of a he job. showed loyalty, put them showed on the map, loyalty, and then... Right, and no, and no scandals. We might get someone better, so you're right. Out. <laughs> it, might, it, might, it might get someone better. <laughs> Crazy. Well, you want to talk a little bit about Oregon? Yeah, Oregon, just they keep winning, but we'll see what happens. Remember, their only loss was to Stanford. And then Cincinnati beat Tulane in a close game. Cincinnati has just beat Navy in a close game. They beat Tulane in a close game. They're, they're number two in the country. How about, do you go to the game, I saw on StubHub, for $2. How many wow. number two teams ranked two in the country have ever played anywhere? And the <laughs> tickets are $2 to go to the game. And the stadium at Tulane was like empty. There was nobody even in the whole stadium. <laughs> it's so bizarre. So you're kind of narrowing it down. Last week you had eight teams eligible. Nine. nine. No, you had nine last yeah. week. So we're down to seven left seven for these left. spots. How do you think this is going to shake and it's out? Just, it's Georgia, Bama, Michigan State, Cincinnati, Oklahoma, uh, Oregon, and, uh, and Ohio State. Now remember, this week the playoff comes out. The playoff committee who sets the playoffs. We've seen the polls, the AP polls. This is going to be the only poll that counts what four teams get in. These are all new members, so we'll see how they rank it. You know, the question is, Cincinnati's undefeated. Are they going to be ahead of a team like a one-loss Ohio State? Oregon beat Ohio State. Are they going to be ahead of them? Uh, Georgia's undefeated. Is Alabama going to be ahead of all these teams? Where do they put Michigan State? Like, to me, those seven teams, but Ohio State and Michigan State are going to cancel each other out. I really think Oklahoma and Oregon are going to lose somewhere. And so, and, and, and the question is, can Bama beat Georgia? I mean, if Georgia beats if Georgia and Alabama were both undefeated, this this championship game would not matter. They would both be in. But if Georgia beats Alabama, then you know what happens. You know with two loss Alabama, and then. Some teams need a lot of dominance to fall. Michigan with their one loss. We talked about Wake being undefeated. The Baylor, Oklahoma State really need miracles to happen. Auburn might could Auburn on could controls their own destiny. If they beat Alabama at the end of the year, they win the rest of their games, beat Alabama, then they beat Georgia. They'd have two losses, but their two wins would be over massive Bama <laughs> and Georgia. They might be the first, and they'd be SEC championship. They would get in. So Auburn actually has the way to be the the best team, uh, you know, to make it. What are we watching next week? It's a really weak schedule. It's not really one of the greatest schedules. I mean, LSU at Alabama, big game. Alabama's favorite by 28. I think it's the highest I've ever seen Alabama over LSU in a game. Remember those games for like 10 years, they were like the game even two years ago. I told you it was the best game I've ever seen. But um, I think one of the interesting games that people should pay attention to, Liberty is at Ole Miss. Hugh Freeze is the coach at Liberty. The Mississippi, Ole Miss is only a 10-point favorite, and there's a lot of revenge. There's a lot. There's a big battle. Uh, Hugh Freeze, the coach of Ole Miss, was, uh, they fired him, and there's a big fights and huge lawsuits that are still continuing to this day. So they call it the revenge game. But uh, I think that's, but it's really, it's a it's a weaker show. Michigan State's uh, three, uh, favored by three against Purdue. Oregon's favored by six against Washington. But And Oklahoma State's favored by, I mean, Ohio State's favored by 15 over Nebraska. But unless you see a big upset, it's probably not going to be a week that we talk, you know, so much about college football. That's why we sort of highlighted more games this week. Let's uh, shift gears, go over to the NFL. We got about 11 minutes till we have to bring Jared Diamond in. So, all the talk, you know, in the month leading up to the trade deadline has been Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson. He's still not moved from the Texans, but we did see a future Hall of Famer move today. Von Miller was traded um, since, I think, for the last, he's been, he's an 
nine, eight time pro bowler in the last 11 years. And in the last four years, the number one pressure is Aaron Donald uh, for the, for the Rams. And now who were he's traded to and Von Miller was fourth. So a lot of people said, well, maybe he's not the player he once was. He's um, probably not. But I think he's one of, this is one of the things where like, you know, when Verlander was traded from Detroit to Houston, when you see these players, like he's been at a, at a Denver team, I think it's going to wake up. I'm, again, you really have to appreciate what the Rams are doing with Jalen Ramsey Aaron Donald. Like they don't care about draft picks. They trade two, threes, fours. They don't care about the draft at all. It's only to try to acquire this talent. And they kind of have to win a Super Bowl in the next three years because it should be a downturn after well, that. Well, they want to win it this year. The Super Bowl is in Los Angeles. When I was out there for the Dodger game, that's all people are talking really? about is that Super Bowl, Super Bowl, the Super Bowl's here. So I think the Rams are really like the Tampa Bay did last year with no with some fans. We want to do it in SoFi Stadium with their fans, and that's why they're going all in. So, Ira, you were at uh, Steelers at Browns. I, you must have been to probably a dozen of these games over the last couple of years. I bet there weren't many times where the Browns were favored in these games. But the Browns have been playing pretty good. They got Baker Mayfield back. People are down on the Steelers. I don't think anyone was expecting the Steelers to win here. Well, I was. You I'm, were. I'm, but... Because I'm I'm tired of everyone saying Ben should retire and this and this and on and on. The Steelers are done. and Because I think the whole AFC is just a mess. Like, I think Buffalo is the best team. But Kansas City looks terrible. Like, I think it's like all these other teams could compete. So I don't – like the Steelers, when they play well and Ben stays healthy and does smart, smart things – I mean, they, I think they can do it. I mean, I was there two years ago when Mason Rudolph played for the Steelers. It was a total disaster. At the end of the game, Miles Garrett took his that was the helmet, took his helmet <laughs> off him and then hit him over the head. You've been at some iconic games. Right. I mean, <laughs> but Ben is 24-3 and three and one against the Browns. It was funny, though. The fans were actually nice. There were tons of Steelers fans, as of always. But I thought the Browns fans, which I always criticized, were actually nice. I told the people around me about the story about having an Ohio State game. And so this little – everyone was nice, so nice during the game. At the end of the game, this little old lady who I told the story to when it gave me a big shove she, got, <laughs> she just laughed and it was like so funny but um it was it, it look they have a great atmosphere there people are parked on both sides of this the road there's a big road there there's a lot of tailgating a lot of fun i really enjoy going to the brown i mean it was fun to see that type of activity and enthusiasm at the game but uh and i sat lower on the 50 very windy at the game but dry every the drop passes were unbelievable if you watch that game on tv it was hard i don't know if it was broadcast that was not broadcast down here but it was just unbelievable what happen yeah i have red zone so of course they were showing you know going back and forth but all game they did a pretty good job of keeping the the browns in check and and you know beckham couldn't get anything going the running game which is the best in the league couldn't really get that that good of a footing and you guys lost your kicker on a trick play which kind of set you back from the eight ball right off the beginning the steelers defense looked absolutely horrendous that first drive and uh, the, the cleveland went down but they only got a field goal tj watt He's so good. When you see him in person now, like I've seen TJ Watt play, he's now playing at the, I'm not going to say Lawrence Taylor level, but at a level where one defensive player, like the water boy level, can yeah. just, just stop. So anything in a game, like he's just around. You cannot block him. You can't put three people on him. Like you, he's just unblockable. And uh, then they, they only had, how about the first first quarter? The Steelers had the ball for one time and they ran seven plays and 22 yards ahead to punt the ball. The Browns go down and then they had fourth and one. Chubb goes, stopped by TJ Watt, yeah. stopped him again. So Watt was like around everything. And uh, uh, at the end of the first half, the the Steelers it was four. There was three three, similar to the Dolphins and the Bills game. But it was three three, and uh, on fourth and nine, on it was fourth and nine, and the Steelers tried a fake field goal. Chris Boswell runs out, 
gets hit, it gets a concussion on the play, and so they don't get they don't convert, and now he's out the rest of the game. So the Steelers are to play the entire second half without a kicker. Impossible. So it's like the old school football. <laughs> We're just gonna have to play without a kicker. And uh, and the Browns though, you know, I watched them against Odell Beckham Jr. He had one target. He actually was targeted once. There was another penalty, but one, he had one catch for six yards with one target. He's not getting separation. The Steelers no. were able. Everyone says, "Oh, trade Odell." He's not the player at all that he once was, and I think that hurts him. And uh, there was like there was this one point where the Steelers had like three and out where they had three out and four t- four drives and then finally Mayfield and Chubb they started running the ball down the Steelers and they scored 10-3 but th- they scored their, their 10 points with 9.36 left in the third they don't score the rest of the game because the, the Steelers went down 12 play 78 yard drive and this is Najee Harris this, I've been saying I love this draft pick and Najee ha- the offensive line stinks and you say why do you draft a, a running back we have a bad offensive line because the holes are small but Najee Harris goes through him and he just burns right through those holes and nobody can tackle him you can't aren't you need four people to tackle Najee Harris and he is so good when that offensive line improves you're going to see some great great running but he was just key for that they go down there uh and they don't but they can't score because they have no kickers so they have to go for two <laughs> and uh then it just started this this whole run where the where every seam every time I saw the Browns they were dropping Paul's I mean, you couldn't believe the fans were just Jarvis Landry, their sure-handed wide receiver, must have dropped five balls. He was targeted ten times, caught five times, and five of them. And you feel bad for Baker because he's trying. He has one torn labrum, and he's throwing these balls right on there. And I've never seen. And it's not rainy. It's not cold. It's not whatever. This dropped in. The Steelers went down. They're down ten nine, and uh, on first to goal in the two, they couldn't score. And they finally threw it to Pat on fourth down because they can't kick a field goal. Was the Pat Fryermuth, the tight end, rookie tight end from Penn State. What a catch in the bottom of the back of the end zone. He's been a nice find. Oh, Harris and Firemuth as rookies for the Steelers, which is great. And then what happens? So Ramsey has five drops. And then when he finally catches the ball, he fumbles the ball. <laughs> and the Steelers get the ball back. And Watt was, of course, recovered it. He's around there everywhere. But it was one of those games where then, then you know, they held on to win 15-10. And the Steelers, look, they have a winning, they're, they're winning and they're not scoring a lot of points. But they figure out to win games. And that's great. So we got about just five minutes or so here. So we got to fly through these. Going back to Thursday night, Ira, this is a game that could be the NFC Championship game with Arizona and Green Bay. I don't know if I learned anything from watching this game. Is Arizona a house of cards? Is Green Bay that good? It was a really weird game. Well, Green Bay was missing all their wide receivers. They were missing 10 other players. And really, it was like one of those weird games where uh, where Aaron Rodgers couldn't extend the lead. So they, they went on fourth down. They couldn't score. So they only have three. And... Arizona a chance to at least tie the game at the end and throws an intercept and, and yeah, Kyler Murray goes to AJ Green who doesn't turn around throws an interception at right at the end of the game it was weird I think that the, it makes the legend of Aaron Rodgers they're 7-1 better because there's no wide receivers and they still go into Arizona and win that game and I do think it makes you're sort of questioning it could be a mirage in the desert for Arizona so Ira watching the Buffalo and Miami game it's just watching this team they may not be the most skilled team in the league, but their coaching staff is not putting them in position to win ever. And I liked Brian Flores a lot last year. The defense has taken a notable step back. Watching the terrible play calling, I went to see who's calling the play since it's not him. They have two offensive coordinators and the quarterback coach gets a say in the play calling too. 
this just doesn't seem to work, and it's not working on the field. If I could ask Ryan Flores one question, is about Jalen Waddle. I mean, I have my fantasy team, so I sort of watch him. He never runs deep. Now, in Alabama, do you realize how many big, yeah. long plays he had? Now, unless he got an injury, he can't run, but he looks fast when he's out there. I mean, I know he's a slot receiver, but you, just because you're a slot receiver, Antonio Brown is a slot yeah. receiver of Steelers, but they still set him down the field. Why won't they throw Waddle down? He's down. faster than everybody on the field, so why don't they? I don't understand the Waddle. He had four catches for 26 yards. Almost every game he has like 10 catches for seven. He's not getting these large, and they never target him for so long passes. I, I don't understand. They're it. not throwing the ball down the field at all. They, uh, Tua had a 40 yard completion. It's the longest of his career. 40 yards is Tua's longest. And you can see completion. with Burrow and Chase with Cincinnati, they're throwing those long Five passes. Five times a game. You would think that Tua and Waddle, who played on this, they were they, they must have completed out of 40, 50 passes it, to Waddle. It's either he's limited or the play, the play callers do not want him going deep. But they don't even run him deep, but he looks fast enough. I, I, I got to think it's the play callers, and I think it's terrible. They got to unleash uh, Jalen Waddle. So Tennessee got a win versus India, uh, Indy in in overtime, but at what cost? Because they're the, what would have probably been the MVP, a running back for the first time in years, out for the season. Well, he has, 900, he has th- 960 yards, and Jonathan Taylor from the Colts has 660. So he's having this. He was going to rush for maybe like 24. Set the all, he could maybe set the all-time record with another one mm-hmm. easily with 17 games. It, he's been so durable year after year after year. Hurts his foot, and now Tennessee's their season's over. It's just a, a shame. And they're bringing in Adrian Peterson. Yeah, good uh, luck. Uh, uh, this year's not Adrian Peterson. He's been <laughs> out of the football for two years. Cincinnati and the Jets. I mean, the NFL is just a wild, wild thing where you really don't know what's going to happen week to week. Nobody would have picked the Jets to beat Cincy. Mike White was a, from Western Kentucky. He was drafted in 2018. He threw for 405 yards and two, three touchdowns. How about this stat? They and Jets came back 17 points in the fourth quarter since 1950. 50, two quarterbacks have had 400 yards in their first start. Cam Newton and Mike White. Yeah. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> He's the first 400-yard passer for the Jets since 2000. It's been 20 years since the Jets. That's, <laughs> That's uh, now, all my friends are like, oh, okay, you know, we, we, you know, Zach Wilson. We should get rid of him. We should. Uh, we, we definitely have to. We we should definitely have Mike. You know, but it's like this is like Heineke, Heike for uh, uh, Washington last year. You can mm. have one game where you come out, but that Mike White had the game of all games. We've seen what's his name, Matt Flynn, who had 400 yeah, yards. Game right. replacing uh, Rogers. Um, New England and the Chargers. Good job by Bill Belichick getting this team to win games. Everyone loves the Chargers, and Pat- Patriots did what they had to do. Well, it's like Bill Belichick against rookie, uh, not rookie quarterbacks, but younger quarterbacks. He finally yeah. finds out how to do it. Um, and this Adrian Phillips played for the Chargers. He had two passes interception, one return for a touchdown. And the Chargers, who everybody thought, oh, they're amazing, they're great. Now I've had two bad losses in a row. They're four and three. The whole AFC is four and three. They're all four and something. Mm-hmm. They're all whatever. Yeah, it's funny because they, they would be like the final seed in right now, whereas the NFC, the final seed in could be the Panthers. It's a big difference yes. in, in level of talent. Tom Brady has three weaknesses. Eli Manning, Nick Foles, and regular season New Orleans Saints can't beat them. And Sean Payton called a great game. It was a really, really fun game to watch. Yeah, this would be the whole problem with Brady, except for last year he went to New Orleans with a chance. And people forget, that was why it's so miraculous what Tampa Bay had done, what the Tampa Bay accomplished last year. They went and beat Drew Brees in New Orleans. And that's one of the things with Sean Payton. Okay, you're great. He got his one Their Super Bowl. Their last loss was to them in the regular season. Right. They got crushed. crushed. <laughs> but this was a bad, I mean, I, a game where they were down. And it was like one of those things where they came down. New Orleans came down, kicked the field goal, but they gave Brady a minute and 41 to go, only down two. That's easy. I mean, that's layup yeah. for him, and he throws an interception on that. Mm-hmm. And it was like so perfect for him. But there's no Antonio Brown, no Gronk. God would have had a big game. But I, when Antonio Brown and Gronk, that team needs those two. I think Antonio Brown, before he got just this recent injury, was playing at a high level. Let's just see. Again, 
Everyone thought Tampa was going to defeat it. They're not. They're, this is just they're learning to play. Just relax. Everyone should just relax about Tampa Bay. They're, they'll they'll win some games, but and New Orleans plays well against them. You know who I wouldn't relax about is Kansas City, Ira. I don't know. They're still the third-ranked team in Vegas to win the Super Bowl, money-wise. This team doesn't look like it to me. Patrick Mahomes does not look the same. Ten and a half points to line with the Giants tonight. I wouldn't bet this game, but if I had to, I'm taking the points. Well, can you believe it's a 2-5 and five team, Giants against 3-4 and four Chiefs. You would think, oh, we're not no one's interest, but there's going to be a ton of interest. Patrick oh, yeah. Mahomes playing. And what the fact is, but I clearly, I'm with you. We were wrong last week. I, I was wrong. I, I thought you were right. I thought Seattle would beat New Orleans. New Orleans, they won the game, and they were, they were the underdog. But in this case, I think it's just like a 40-30 game or 40-34 game. I think Daniel Jones is going to have a big game, so I think he'll stay Chiefs here. defense is terrible. Chiefs defense is awful. So, yeah, no, I would take the Giants and the points here. What do we got next week? Green Bay at Kansas City. Talk about a yeah. game. So this is what the pressure is. What if what if Kansas City loses this game? They're three and four. They go three and five. Then they have Green Bay coming and they could be three and six. Now they're starting to get nervous that they might not make the playoffs. So that this is a big, this is semi-big. They, they can't afford to lose this game. They're one Patrick Mahomes is one and two at home. We had that big that stretch where they never lost at home. Now they've lost two games at home this year so far. You want to talk just a little baseball before we have to get to uh, Jared Diamond? Yeah, I just want to set it up right now. Braves and Astros. Uh, the Braves in the first two first game, Braves won in in Houston six two. The second game, Astros came back seven two. But then when they went to to Atlanta. The Braves, 2-0, and then they won 3-2. And it was like one of those where the, the Braves are using Minter, Jackson, Matic, Matic, and Smith, these relievers, and just shutting down. I, the whole story is that the Astros, in the first four games, they've had two runs, zero runs, two runs. And you're, th- you're thinking, wow, this could be, this is the end of the Astros. But just like in the Red Sox series last night, the Braves go out 4 nothing in, in the, the first, first inning. inning. And it's like the chance, the record has been like 43-3 and in any clinching game where a team has had a four-run lead. but And then and they blow it, but and they score. The Astros score two in the second, and then they score another two. And even when Freeman hits a home run, takes a one-run lead, they end up scoring and, and leading nine to five. So it was a, it was definitely one of those things where the Braves now they're up three-two. They go back home, and we'll talk to Jared about that. Yeah, let's do Jared Diamond here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9. We're honored to have Jared Diamond, the national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, author. We had him before, the author of Swing Kings, um, a great book about baseball. So thanks again, Jared, for coming back on Iron Sports. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. So I was talking to you a little off the air about how you're, you actually flew back to New York for the, your day off, and you thought yesterday, maybe in the first inning, that you wouldn't, you would, you're following the World Series, that you would just be able to, you know, just that's your last flight. But I guess you, you thought maybe that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, first of all, I think every person in the ballpark thought after that Alan Duval Grand Slam that they were going to be celebrating for the rest of the night. Uh, was not meant to be. And I, I remember thinking around the second inning after the Astros, Got a couple of guys on base, and Bregman, Alex Bregman hits that double that drives in, I think, the first Houston run. I, I remember sending a note to my boss. I said, this is going to end 10-5 to 5 Houston. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, you can't keep these guys down forever. Eventually, this lineup's going to hit. And it was not 10-5 to 5 Houston. It was 9-5 to 5 Houston. <laughs> so forgive me for being off by a run, but I think I was close enough. Well, I mean, I think um, Schnitzer, the manager of the Braves, is getting a, a little criticism. Maybe I wouldn't say a lot, but considering how NFL coaches are getting criticized today. But he's getting some criticism, the fact that you're up 3-1. He felt he played it safe, keeping Davidson in a little bit longer uh, when he was having trouble and not going. I mean, the, the pitcher lining that's been working out you know, great has been the Minter, Jackson, Matesick, Smith, 
that those those four pitchers that came in and not to maybe start that earlier um, and try to make them pitch longer. Is there a thought why they didn't? You know why why the Braves you know waited you know with Davidson in the game a little too long? They had pushed their relievers so far in games three and four. I mean, it's really remarkable that Atlanta's in this position, given that it basically has two starting pitchers <laughs> and has been trying to navigate the rest of this exclusively with their bullpen. And, you know, it, it's worked. They got through games three and four, uh, really relying heavily on their bullpen. And it sort of ran out in game five. But like, I think you do have to acknowledge, if you're Atlanta, that you are up three to one. And yes, you want to end it right there. You don't want to go back to Houston. Of course, every single game you lose brings you a little bit closer to a game seven and ultimately losing. But you still have to manage recognizing that you have to win one out of three and that you are going to manage differently and you have to win one out of three as opposed to one out of one. So I think that's why he took the approach. He knows that he's going to have fully rested Max Fried in game six. If necessary, fully rested Ian Anderson in game seven. So even though Atlanta lost yesterday and Houston is feeling very good about itself this morning, I don't think there's any question that Atlanta still sits in the driver's seat, just knowing what's sort of coming for them. You know, if you're a baseball fan, and I, I hearken back to Mike Francesca when they were talking about Roger Clemens at the end, and he made, he made the comment, he goes, Roger Clemens is a six-inning pitcher. Well, if, if you have a six-inning pitcher now, that's like your total number one ace. Um, I mean, considering that not there's no starter, there's been five games, two stars in each team. Nobody's gone past five innings, and the average length of a start is like three, three or you know about three innings. Um, what it's it's just come on. I mean, a couple of years ago there was this you know the bullpen type games, but it seems like almost every game now is a bullpen type game. Yeah, look, part of this, a big part of this, is the simple fact that the game has changed. There's no question about it. Like you said, it was just what three, four years ago where what Tampa Bay was doing with its bullpen was extremely radical and it's now taken over the game in terms of relying on these bullpen games and, and whatnot. So look, certainly the game has changed, especially in the postseason where you have all these off days and you're really able to push your bullpen to the limit. That said, the one thing that I would sort of caution, I think is at least worth considering, is we have to remember that this season – has been a strange one because every pitcher is coming off the pandemic-shortened 2020 season where they where all of them threw 50, 60 innings at most. I think the, the innings leader last year was at 80, uh, which was Lance Lynn of Chicago. So during a situation where these pitchers have really barely pitched last year, and not only did they have to pitch a full load in 2021, they're also now pitching this extra month in the postseason. So while I think that what we're seeing now is certainly indicative of what we're going to see in the future, there's part of me that at least wants to believe that it's been exacerbated this season just because every pitcher is so gassed. I mean, there's it's not typical in the World Series when both teams have basically two starting pitchers that they're able to use. I know Charlie Morton got injured for Houston, uh, for Atlanta, rather. For Houston, it was Lance McCullers. But the fact is, that is not typical. So I don't think that we're going to see this to quite this extent in the future. But certainly, unless the rules change, this is the game right now. Yeah, I mean, you 
think about two years ago when you had Scherzer, Corbin, and Strasburg for the Nationals, and they used, uh, and they really, they didn't trust their bullpen, so they were pitching, you know, they were using their starters to relieve in, uh, in terms of games, but it's, uh, uh, that I, I compare the Braves a lot to the Nationals because in the middle of the year, they're a 500 team, and they really turn it on, and, and they're just, they're following the same blueprint of just getting hot at the end and then riding it through the playoffs. Yeah, like, that's, that's, that's baseball. People get mad about this <laughs> all the time, and they want to. They people want to believe. I think that, base, that baseball is fair. That the World Series or the the, the champion, the postseason, is a competition that determines who the best team in baseball is. Uh, it's not. It, it's just simply not. Uh, we know who the best team or teams in baseball were. They proved it over six months. It was San Francisco. It was Los Angeles. It was Tampa Bay. Those were the best teams in baseball this year. They just sort of indisputably were. The postseason is not designed to get, to sort of honor the best team. It's designed to put on a good show, to be entertaining, to be fun and exciting, which it is. So I just think as a fan, you have to sort of change your mindset. Like, there's no question that the Astros – were a better team than the Braves this season. They proved it over six months. The Braves weren't even over 500 until the first week of August. But they made some really shrewd moves at the trade deadline. A lot of credit goes to GM Alex Anthopoulos for making the moves he did and even considering making moves when many of his peers would have just punted on the season after Ronald Acuna Jr. got hurt and the team is languishing in third place in the division. Uh, and they've gotten really, really hot. The Astros' bats have been really, really cold. And as a result, uh, the team with the worst record heading into the postseason is the favorite now to win the whole thing. Uh, and ultimately, that's the team that gets remembered. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. Winning the World Series should be the ultimate honor. It is. But I do think that sometimes I, I think I feel as if we should be a little bit more appreciative of the teams that win the regular season, the teams that survive the six-month gauntlet uh, and have 100, 102, 103, in this, this case, 107 wins. It's a remarkable accomplishment. I think in general, sports, all sports, at least in the United States, have moved so far into this idea that anything short of a championship means the season is a complete failure. And a lot of fans feel that way. I just think that's a completely ridiculous way of watching sports, yeah, whatever works for you. I'm not going to judge someone's fandom, but that to me doesn't seem like a very fun way to be a fan where the only thing that matters, the only way a season is worthwhile is if your team wins the World Series or wins the Super Bowl or wins the NBA Finals. Well, I mean, I guess that's I mean, that's why I love college football so much because I think college football has – I don't want to see it expanded. I like the fact there's only four teams in the playoff because you really have to that – that makes every game matter during the season – um, and, and baseball, of course, used to have just the American National League and just they met in the pet for the you win your pennant and you play in the World Series. But you mentioned about the Astros in terms of last night, in terms of you, you knew they were going to start hitting. And you saw that in the Red Sox series. They were down 2-1 and they were in by the eighth inning. And then from that eighth inning on, they outscored them like 30-3, to uh, the Red Sox. And in that series, it's like, are the Astros the type of team now that had that big runs last night and now we're just going to put up another 9-10 runs and just run away with this World Series? That's what the Astros are certainly hoping for. <laughs> um, I think that anyone who's watched baseball enough knows that 
the concept of momentum is sort of a fallacy. It just doesn't really happen. So it's really hard to predict that this is just going to continue. But I will say that look, ultimately, given enough games, players play like the back of their baseball cards, right? Like that's just what we know about baseball. Eventually, guys are going to turn it around. The question is seven games enough to sort of turn it around. Well, I don't know. That's what we're going to find out. But I do know that Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman and these guys that have been struggling are incredible hitters, that they are not going to stay down forever. Eventually, they're going to get hot. And perhaps yesterday was the beginning of it, especially for Carlos Carrera, who had three hits. I think Jose Altuve might have had two hits, I believe, and a couple of – there were some extra base hits in there as well. So, Look, it's, it's a good sign if you're an Astros fan, but you have to remember that they're going to see Max Fried uh, in Game 6, who's Atlanta's best pitcher and, and not exactly an, an, an easy starter to have to deal with. And then along the same lines, um, Andrew Friedman, so I was in L.A. for all the games in L.A. and San Francisco when they played them and the Braves, and the, of course the biggest criticism is in the Game 2 against the Braves, you bring Urias in in the 8th inning, who gives up when, on a four, when you have a 4-2 lead, blows the lead, and then Urias is tired and can't pitch Game 4, um, and Dave Roberts gets a lot of criticism, of course, for that. And then when Andrew Friedman, the general manager of the Braves, had his press conference this past week or last week, and that the first question was, Who's making the calls? Is it you? Is it Dave Robertson? He like laughed at the question. Like he's never like he goes, You keep asking the same question. But I guess that's a question from you know to you is like, who is making these in-game decisions? Is it really the managers or 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 is it just they're putting this fiction on and really the fifty people that are, you know, under there for the Dodgers are making all the calls with all the computers and analyzing? Look, I, I'm not gonna sit here and say that the general managers are somehow sending messages down to the managers and dictating which pitcher comes in and dictating every move that's made in real time. That, that's not happening, and that's probably why Andrew Friedman laughs at those questions or tries to dismiss them. He's going to say, well, how could you say I'm, call I'm calling these moves? I'm not calling them. David's calling them. I'm not talking to him during the game, which, fair, that is accurate. You're not talking to him during the game. But there is a script. There is a plan that many people have a hand in. Uh, before the games start. We, we know this. We know that we could sort of infer that, for instance, the decision to start uh, to use an opener in Game 5 against San Francisco instead of starting Julio Urias, as expected, was not ultimately Dave Roberts' decision. He may have had a voice in the decision-making process, but many other people did as well. So all of these things are scripted out and there is sort of some suggestions that are given to the managers. And look, there's no question, no matter what Andrew Friedman or anyone wants to say, that the field manager is not acting with sort of autonomy the way he used to, which is the fact. While he may be the one you know, pulling the trigger in the moment, those decisions are being made after hours and hours of conversations and data and research that's provided by the front office. And look, and there's no question uh, and this varies from team to team the extent, but there's no question that a manager's job security is generally going to be tied to whether he's following the directions of the front office, whether he's executing the plan that's being handed down to him. I'm not saying that a manager is never allowed to deviate, but generally speaking, GMs want to work with managers that they feel like uh, are going to listen to them and that they have a 
what they would describe as a collaborative relationship. <laughs> That's the term you would hear a lot. So, look, Andrew Friedman absolutely has his hand in everything. I'm not going to say that like, he was the one that decided to bring Julio Urias into the game in that spot. Like, he wasn't. It was, it was Dave Roberts. But it was after plenty of discussion and conversation before the game that at least, you know, made it clear that that was an option for Roberts to consider. Because you haven't heard... I've never heard a manager yet. I mean, I guess that's the quickest way to get fired because you don't expect it. But for someone to say, well, you know, tired of asking this question, like, it's not really my call. I didn't make that call. Like, they never they never just are honest and say, that wasn't my call. I didn't want to do that, but I'm told that it had to be that way because otherwise they'd be fired from the job. Right. They'll never say that. And, and like, I don't think it's quite that cut and dry either. I don't, I don't think, at least often, in, in, in a good organization, at least, like good organizations like the Dodgers, that the decision-making process works that way, where it's literally like uh, an edict that comes down from on high. I, I don't think it really ever works that way, or at least it, it shouldn't. And I don't think good teams operate that way. But there's certainly uh, a lot of conversation uh, where the front office's opinion is at least uh, duly noted, I guess is what I would say. And uh, well, we're talking to Jared Diamond, the national base writer of the Wall Street Journal, author of Swing Kings. If you haven't read the book, you're looking for a good baseball book to read. It's It analyzes everything about why we have the home run revolution and everything. We talked about the World Series, but just a, a couple of minutes left. It, um, I want to ask you quickly about the Yankees. Uh, we have a lot of fans, of course, down here in West Palm Beach that are huge fans of the Yankees, very critical of what happened. I was at the Red Sox-Yankee game uh, in the in the wild card game. It just it seems like you know they're trying to just have Cole as your one starter and just hit home runs the fans are really frustrated with what happened this whole year. Yeah, it was a tough year for the Yankees. They they somehow were better than they played in the regular season and also a lot worse. <laughs> they were very complicated. It's sort of hard to really put your finger on who they were. I don't think anyone really has a grasp of what their identity was. And maybe that's the problem, that they were just so prone to these wild swings where they go through stretches where they look like the best team in baseball and then they go through stretches where they look like the absolute worst. Uh, at the end of the day, strangely, somehow, their pitching, it held up uh, overall. Jordan Montgomery had a really good season for the Yankees. Garrett Cole, uh, in spite of his poor performances at the end, really was good for most of the season for the Yankees. I know the expectations for him were extremely high as they should be, given the amount of money he's making. But uh, I do think that the Yankees need to at least consider some sort of reset. Uh, They're just not – they don't seem to have that edge that we've seen them have. And, I, you know, it's it's such a cliche to always go back and talk about 96, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. But the reason people talk about those teams is those teams were so good. And they weren't just good. They had – they had a quality. They had something about them that made them special that these teams don't have. They just lack that spark. Brian Cashman has been the Yankees GM for seemingly 100 years. Uh, in reality, it's been more than 20. And I think he's really a very good GM and probably hasn't gotten as much credit as he deserves over the years. Uh, but I would totally understand if Hal Steinbrenner were to say, you know, we need a new voice. It's not that Brian Cashman isn't a great GM. If he were on the open market, a team with an opening would hire him in 10 seconds. It wouldn't even be a question. 
But I do think at some point you have to look at yourself and go, is, do we just need a different approach? Do we need a different voice? Do we need to just shake things up for the sake of shaking them up? Uh, that's not how Hal Steinbrenner operates, so I don't know if that's going to happen, at least not right now. But I certainly wouldn't blame him if that's how he felt. And then the one team that still doesn't have a GM uh, is the Mets. They've talked to people. They have good conversations, but it seems like everything is no decisions made. And, and one of the names I was thinking when you look at this Astros team is Jeff Lunau. I mean, everyone else, it seems, from the scandal has been rehired. He's the general manager who built the Astros when, from, from ground up, really. Um, a lot of these players that are playing and you're seeing are ones he discovered and found and, and put in the system. It's amazing that he can't... I mean, there's a, a lot of other reasons why in terms of whatever, but it is surprising that some of these teams that are struggling wouldn't you know, reach out to Lunau and see what the blowback would be to bring him in to be the general manager. It, it is a little strange that A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora were welcomed back without any hesitation after their suspensions ended, while Jeff Lunau seems to still be really on the outs, like total persona non grata in the baseball industry. I think some of that is a little bit of schadenfreude. Uh, people liked Alex Cora and A.J. Hinch. They were really well-respected in the game before this happened. Uh, Jeff Lunau was not. Uh, in fact, I would say he was one of the most hated people in the game, even before anything <laughs> happened with sign stealing, other teams did not like him. They did not like working with him. He had a very bad reputation. He was great as job, clearly, uh, but he was not liked. And I think that's part of it, where there's this attitude of, like, that guy had a coming to him, good riddance, so you don't have to deal with this guy anymore. Now, all of that said, you're not the only person who's probably thought, hmm, the Mets are a pretty high-profile job. They need somebody. And let's be honest, if there's any owner in baseball that would considering hiring that would consider hiring Jeff Luna, it does seem like Steve Cohen would be that guy. He I don't know Steve Cohen. I never met the man. Only I've only talked to him via Zoom and press conferences. Never never had any real interaction with him. But doesn't he just seem like the kind of guy that would bring Jeff Luna in and say, To hell with what everyone says, this is my guy. I'm not saying he's gonna do it. I don't know how Sandy Alderson would feel about that. Uh, but man, that would be awesome. That would be so much fun. What is, <laughs> how much drama would that be if they yeah. were to hire Jeff Luna? It would be quite a story. So, and one last question, Jared, is thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. Is, is, do, you have, do you have a prediction for these final two games? What do you see? How do you see? Is it going to end tomorrow night, or do you think we're going to have a game seven and, uh, and it'll be all hands on deck? I don't think the Braves are going to lose a 3-1 lead again. They, they blew a 3-1 lead last year, you remember. Right. In the NLCS to the Dodgers, uh, they're not going to do it again. They're just they're just hot right now. They have everything going for them. They have their two top starters on the mound these next two games. Houston's pitching is really in shambles. Uh, I think the Braves are going to pull it out. I, I you know I really do. I think they're going to find a way. And honestly, it'd be nice. Let's throw this to someone different to try. I've seen the Astros in the World Series three times in the last five years. I think we all we all kind of know what they're about. I, I like the idea of someone different getting an opportunity, especially a guy like Freddie Freeman, who is really one of the most beloved players in the game. I think it would be really exciting for him to get a ring. Oh, that thing that he put out on uh, on Instagram where he a kid was trick-or-treating and he was holding his son or daughter, the young one, and, and the kid was wearing a Freddie Freeman jersey. And he goes, look, you're wearing my jersey. The kid was shocked. He goes, they got a picture. do you want a picture with the real with Freddie Freeman? And the kid was like in total shock, but he's so nice. I'm sure.
But uh, anyway, Jared, really I know guy. you're busy. He's really well liked. <laughs> Have a safe trip down to Houston, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on for Iron Sports tonight. Yeah, thanks so much. Great stuff there, and, and I'm with him. I, I can't see them losing three in a row again to close this out. The team's had too much just working right for it this year, and I'm picking them to to still win the series. Yeah, I mean, they have, as you said, they got uh, Freed and Anderson both on on rest. Houston has no pitching staff at all. The question with Houston is, I said the same thing against with the Red Sox. They're ready to play a 10-12 run game. and they're, They it's can. Beat a 12-10, and, and I don't know if the Braves can go that deep. If it's going to be, like, they'll lose, like, 10-8, 10-7. And, and so it's one of those situations where, but that's why I was criticizing uh, the Braves. They should have tried to win it in three. Like, bring, they have these relievers, end it now, mm-hmm. because once you get into these games like this, it, it gets out of control, and then suddenly they have a four-run lead. The Astros can come back from four-run leads. I don't think the Braves can. And now they're in someone else's house, too. They're not home anymore. Yes. Um, wrap it up at NASCAR. Well, it was just... The it was the next to last race. It was Martinsville. Um, Alex Bowman won to get in the final four. It's going to be Alex Bowman, Kyle Larson, who are both Hendrick drivers, and the Joe Gibbs drivers are Kenny, uh, Denny Hamlet and Martin Truex. But Bowman crashed into or actually pushed Hamlet out uh, on one of the last laps to, to win the race. Then Hamlet, while Bowman is celebrating the victory circle, Hamlin came in and was like ready to knock him and crash into him. And you heard over this, the loudspeaker in terms of what in the microphone where Hamlin has said, his, his uh, uh, spotter said, Danny, relax, you know, think of the big picture, don't crash into him or you'll be disqualified. <laughs> but I think it sets up for Phoenix next week. These four drivers, one of them has a chance to, to win the title. And also the F Formula One, the Mexican Grand Prix, is next week so on Sunday afternoon it's weird to have these races right in the middle of football season but I said I should think it should end in the summer but uh, so it'll be an exciting end to NASCAR and almost to the end of Formula One what are you doing this week because I know you got some decisions to make I got big decisions to make. I haven't <laughs> decided but we'll, we'll find out tune in next week for decide where I went I mean <laughs> where I'm what I'm going we'll, we'll, we'll wait till next week to see <laughs> thank you so much to Jared Diamond on behalf of Ira I'm Mike let's talk next Monday night it's Iron Sports